last year there were nearly 22,000 murders in the U.S. Not surprisingly, more than 200 true crime podcasts launch every year in the U.S. alone. There's no shortage of crimes and no shortage of crime podcasts to cover them, but none of those shows have the heart of our true crime podcast. Thank goodness. Well, hell, mm-hmm. they didn't even have seatbelt laws back then. They never wore seatbelt. Yeah, it's fine. He could not remember exactly what happened and thought that he had blacked out. That was about it. That's all he could tell oh, officers. No. He was drawing things, saying the, the thoughts won't stop. I want to see, see how this plays out. It's heartbreaking. Isn't it time you made our true crime podcast your true crime podcast? Our true crime podcast, available on all your favorite podcasting apps. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1979. 18-year-old Roseanne Lavka finished her shift at McDonald's around 10 p.m. She was tired after a long day. She walked home along the well-lit streets of downtown Portland, Oregon, to her large brick apartment building, the Tudor Arms. This was one block from the Mickadees, which was located at West Burnside and 18th. The Tudor Arms was situated at 1811 Northwest Cooch Street. Three weeks earlier, Roseanne had moved into the apartment on the first floor, number 103, that was occupied by her sister, 20-year-old Anna Marie Lavka, and Anna Marie's boyfriend, David. Anna Marie worked at McDonald's, too, but the sisters had been on separate shifts that day, July 24th, a Tuesday. Anna Marie had gotten off work hours earlier, and Roseanne knew she would find her sister at home. Roseanne didn't have a key to the apartment yet, and Anna Marie had said she would be home to let her in. She had also promised to put away a bunch of Roseanne's things that she had just had shipped from Canada, where she had been living with relatives. Roseanne walked the short distance from the McDonald's to the Tudor Arms. Since she couldn't let herself in, lacking a key, she rang the doorbell at the outer door of the apartment building, the one that opened to the street. This was the kind of bell that you ring to a specific apartment and ask the resident to buzz you in. She rang it a couple of times, but never received a buzz back from her sister, or heard her voice over the intercom. But then she noted that the door was actually unlocked, something that residents told police was common. Roseanne was able to push the entryway door open and walk right into the building. She walked down the hallway and knocked at the door to 103. She knocked and knocked. Nothing. Finally, in exasperation, she turned and walked to the manager's apartment. The manager, Mrs. Irma Dykeman, was in the middle of a dinner party. 
She knew who Roseanne was and allowed her to take a spare key to apartment 103 as long as she promised to return it ASAP. So Roseanne went back to her apartment door and unlocked it, and leaving the door hanging open, she dashed back to the manager's apartment and stuck the spare key through the slot in the door. Then she came back to her and her sister's place and walked through the kitchen area and into the living room where she plopped down in an overstuffed chair the way you do when you get home from work. The TV was on and the light above the TV was on as well, but the light in her sister's bedroom was off. Thinking her sister might be asleep, she called out Anna Marie's name quietly. Receiving no response, she walked back to her sister's bedroom and flipped the light switch at the open doorway. When she saw Anna Marie, she started screaming. Shaking, Roseanne ran to the apartment phone hanging on the wall in the hallway and tried to remember her brother's work phone number. In her panic, she came up blank, so she dialed zero. Guys, for those of you who weren't alive at this time, this sounds crazy, but back in the day, you could actually get a live person on the phone. All you did was dial zero for the operator, and a person would come on and direct your call to the recipient. The operator duly called 911. The Portland police got the call from Roseanne at 10.16. Police officers banged on the front door of the building. Mrs. Dykeman went to let them in. A sobbing Roseanne met them in the hallway. Police notes describe her as hysterical, which I think was probably true. I would have been. Roseanne sobbed, she's dead, they killed her. It was unclear who the they was to whom she was referring. When first responders arrived, uniformed officers from Central Precinct Ed May, Stan Pounds, and B.J. McClendon, they noted quickly that there was nothing they could do for the young woman in the bedroom. Anna Marie was lying on the bed face up. She was prone in a position on the bed that someone would sleep in, with her head at the head of the bed, but her body was down the bed enough that her legs dangled over the foot of the bed. One hand was on her groin area, and the other elbow was bent with her forearm lying across her chest. The positioning of her hand at her crotch led investigators to the belief that the victim had been deliberately posed in a provocative manner. She was lying on top of what appeared to be an unzipped, open sleeping bag. She still wore a blue blouse, but the rest of her was unclothed. Her jeans and underwear lay on the floor. The cord to her silver and black Toshiba portable radio was tightly wrapped around her throat, and her face, frozen in death, was discolored and bloated. The radio was still attached to the cord and lay to the left of her head on the bed. Roseanne told the investigators that she had touched her sister's body. She was in shock, in disbelief at what her eyes were seeing. She touched Anna Marie's arm and face, but she could tell she was dead and stopped. After documenting the scene, investigators severed the radio from the cord, leaving the cord in place and placing the radio in evidence. Then Deputy Medical Examiner Lucas removed the body to the morgue. Let's talk about Anna Marie a little bit. We really don't know very much at all about our victim. Anna Marie Lavka was born in Portland on October 28, 1958. Believe it or not, I really couldn't find any information on her parents, at least one of whom died while Anna Marie was a child. Anna Marie had a sister, the Roseanne whom I've already mentioned, as well as a brother, Michael, and a brother, Joseph, both of whom are now deceased. From what we can guess from piecing together ancestry records and old newspaper clippings, the four Lavka kids were orphaned and lived with various relatives, such as their maternal aunt, Wilma Kosvisto, and her husband, Leo, as well as friends of the family. They had lived for at least some of their lives in Canada. I was able to find out that the Lavka kids' maternal grandmother, Holly Lamy, was born in Finland, and her husband's name was Frederick with the European spelling, 
but the family tree has massive holes, so this is the best I could do. Anyway, Anna Marie was a 1977 graduate of Sunset High School, and she took some classes at Portland Community College. She had worked at McDonald's for six to seven months after giving up a nannying job. The McDonald's manager said she was lovely, quiet, and polite, according to a contemporary news clip I found. Others have described Anna Marie as shy and quiet. She lived an unassuming life and was close with her sister and her long-term boyfriend. Speaking of her boyfriend, David C. was on the lease as well. The two of them had leased the apartment together on December 17, 1978, but they had been living together for more than two years and going together, David estimated, for close to four years. He was in his mid-twenties. Police interviewed the couple for whom Anna had nannied before taking the McDonald's job. They, too, said she was very gentle and quiet. They didn't like her boyfriend David much and encouraged her to date around, but she was only interested in David and talked of marrying him. Some family friends, the Foxes, had known Anna Marie since childhood. Again, they told police that Anna Marie was quiet and meek and they did not like David and rooted for a breakup. Nobody liked David, it seemed. An autopsy on Anna Marie was performed at the county morgue by Dr. Lumen. The medical examiner concluded that the cause of death was strangulation. No surprise there. The killer had held the radio with one hand and wrapped its cord around Anna Marie's throat four times in a clockwise direction. Somewhat oddly, Anna Marie had no scratches or bruises on her person at all. She had no defensive wounds. She hadn't been bound either. Of course, sexual assault was suspected because of the positioning of and lack of clothing on the lower portion of the body, but the medical examiner said he couldn't really determine whether one had occurred. It would turn out that it had. I'll get to that in a minute. Anna Marie's body was checked for latent prints using what the notes refer to as iodine silver transfer, but none were detected. The following pieces of evidence were collected and stored. Fingernail scrapings, pubic combings, head and pubic hair standards from the victim, vaginal, rectal, oral, and labial swabs, the electrical cord ligature, Anna Marie's blue blouse and cream bra, and a blood sample from the victim. Some of the swabs taken at autopsy showed the presence of sperm, the vaginal and labial swabs from Anna Marie's genital area. They were clearly fresh. Let's talk about where this whole thing went down. Anna Marie and her boyfriend, David C., lived in northwest Portland, Oregon, in the Tudor Arms building. This was the kind of big brick apartment complex that's built around a courtyard in the center. Long, common interior hallways connected the individual apartments, and the hallways were dimly lit and sort of dreary. The apartment was located on the northwest corner of the building, on the ground floor at the intersection of Northwest Cooch and 18th. The entrance the residents used was on Northwest Cooch and required a key issued to residents to enter. But, as we heard, Roseanne found the door open, having been left just slightly ajar by a previous tenant leaving or coming. And this was the case more often than not. The apartment itself was a small one-bedroom. This from the police report, quote, As you enter the apartment, you are in a hallway that initially has a doorway to the left into a bathroom. Approximately halfway down the hallway is a doorway to the right which opens into a kitchen. A second doorway off the kitchen opens into a living room area. Walking straight down the hallway, you would enter into the bedroom. There is a five-and-a-half-foot accordion doorway between the bedroom and the living room. Apparently, Anna Marie and David shared the bedroom, and Roseanne slept on the couch. Portland homicide detectives Carrie Taylor and Dennis Frome arrived at the apartment and split up the duties. 
Detective Frome drove a very distraught Roseanne down to the detective division for an interview to try to get a sense of who in her sister's life would want to kill her. Detective Taylor started interviewing the apartment manager, Mrs. Irma Dykeman. Mrs. Dykeman said Anna Marie and her sister were model tenants who kept to themselves. As the detective and Mrs. Dykeman were speaking, Mrs. Dykeman pointed out David's car to Detective Taylor. It was approaching the apartment building from about a block away. Officer Higgins, on watch down the street, quickly pulled the vehicle over and ensured that it was parked and locked, and then escorted David to the apartment to meet with police. They told him what was going on and that his girlfriend was dead. Then they took him to the precinct to be interviewed. The police notes don't say this, but I extrapolated that they viewed him at this time as a potential suspect. The Criminalistics Division and State Crime Lab personnel arrived and commenced processing the scene. Criminalist Lloyd Grundmeyer and Oregon State Crime Lab technicians Steve Snyder and Chris Johnson set to work poring over the apartment and collecting anything of possible evidentiary value. They collected a button on the bedroom floor that had been ripped off Anna Marie's jeans. They collected the radio the cord cut off. They also found a note that had been written by the victim lying on the desk in the bedroom. It was addressed to her boyfriend, David, and said she had gone to Fred Meyer and would be home soon. The time on the note was 4 o'clock. The crime scene techs collected this note for fingerprinting. In fact, the entire place was dusted for prints, and many were collected. Some distinct prints were found on the door handle to the bedroom, on the left side of the bedroom doorframe, on the radio that was the source of the cord that was used to strangle Anna Marie, and on an ashtray, a drinking glass, and a tobacco fan. Photos of the crime scene and apartment were snapped, documenting each room. And what was notable was the lack of evidence of a struggle. The investigator's notes indicate that the bedroom Anna Marie was found in had two lamps on end tables and an aquarium, the records don't reflect what kind of aquarium, a desk chair, and so on. Just inside the bedroom door was a small table with phone books. None of this stuff appeared to be out of place. The living room appeared as though someone had been relaxing and watching TV. Police found a partially consumed pack of Marlboro Reds on a table and a pair of shoes and socks on the floor. And a McDonald's cup of Coke with ice in it was on the table next to an overstuffed chair in the living room area. But what was really eerie was that in the kitchen, the crime scene investigators found the two front stove burners on, with rice and vegetables still cooking, probably a tad overcooked at that point, in pans on those burners. What had happened here? Investigators weren't sure. Had Anna Marie been killed by someone who lived in the apartment with her? Or perhaps had the victim allowed someone into the apartment who then had attacked and killed her? Or neither? An open window at the front of the ground floor apartment facing Northwest Cooch Street was duly noted by detectives. Roseanne said her sister had opened the window that morning to let some fresh air in. It was summertime and they had no A.C., and she herself was the one who opened the Venetian blinds as she stood by the window crying hysterically so she could wave to the police responding to the operator's 911 call. The crime scene personnel collected a final few items, three sets of vacuum sweepings from the bedroom and kitchen, two envelopes of hair, Anna Marie's jeans and underwear, and the navy blue sleeping bag she was lying on. When they were done, the door was sealed with a crime scene sticker. Roseanne went to stay at the home of a friend. Tests performed on the sleeping bag taken from under Anna Marie's body detected a stain located directly under her groin area. The stain was determined to be seminal fluid. Several hairs were collected from the sleeping bag as well. 
A, B, and O secretor examinations were inconclusive. The partially inside-out underwear had no semen on it, but did have hair on it. There was one hair on the jeans as well. Detectives started working to put together a timeline of Anna Marie's last known activities and the hours and days leading up to her murder. Roseanne told the detectives that she and her sister had left the apartment that Tuesday morning around 7 a.m. to go to McDonald's. From there, they went to play softball at Delta Park from 7.30 to 9.30. They went back to McDee's, got some coffee, and then she, Anna Marie, and their friend and co-worker Rosemarie went back to the apartment so Anna Marie could change for a job interview. Anna Marie went to the interview and returned home at 1.30. Roseanne left for work at 4 o'clock. She tried to call her sister at the apartment at around 4.30, but there was no answer. This was because, at the time, Anna Marie was at the grocery store, as police would learn from the friend, Rosemarie, who accompanied her. Anna Marie had told her sister she was heading to the grocery store, and this was backed up by the note left for David, saying she was going to Fred Meyer at 4 o'clock. Anna Marie's friend, Rosemarie, was a co-worker of Anna Marie's from McDonald's and her closest friend. She had some information that was important to the timeline. She had been with Anna Marie until just before 5 p.m. on Tuesday. They had gone job hunting together, and then they had played backgammon. After that, they walked to the nearby Fred Meyer so Anna Marie could look for something for a bracelet she was making. They returned to the apartment and hung out for a little bit before Rosemarie left and caught the 455 bus. When she left the apartment, Anna Marie was watching TV alone. Since the investigators had found pots cooking on the stove, it seemed that after Rosemarie left, Anna Marie started dinner, putting the food in the pots on the stove and lighting the flame. Then, before she had a chance to finish cooking, her attacker struck. Unfortunately, the original investigators did not make notes about the food on the stove, how long it appeared to have been cooking. Was it just a short time, or was it burned to a crisp? If they had, we would possibly have a much narrower timeline than 4.55 to 10 p.m. Roseanne did shed some light on a piece of evidence collected from the apartment. She told investigators the Coke in the glass was hers. She had brought it home from her McDonald's shift and put it on the table in the living room. She also told police that the couple Anna Marie had used to nanny for had given her the radio, and she had just put it on her nightstand on Monday. On Tuesday, it was used to kill her. Meanwhile, Anna Marie's boyfriend David told the following story. He had gone fishing with his friend Michael L. all day Saturday. On Sunday, he and Anna Marie hung out. Neither of them worked that day. On Monday, he went to work and then went fishing until after dark. He said he last saw his girlfriend on Tuesday morning around 7.10 a.m. when she and her sister left for the softball game. Then he went to work. He worked for Sharp and Associates Contractors in southwest Portland. He got off work around 5.30 or 6 p.m., and drove to a tavern in Cedar Mills called the Poor House, as in P-O-U-R House. He tried to call Anna Marie at the apartment shortly thereafter from the tavern phone, but there was no answer at the apartment. This could mean that Anna Marie was already deceased, but David was very fuzzy on the timing of this call. He stayed at the Poor House for several hours drinking beer and playing pool. He was buddies with the owner, Vern, and then he drove home. Police pressed David about his and Anna Marie's sex life. He said it was normal, they did it about once a week, and the last time they had sex was on the 23rd, Monday night, around 10 p.m. Seemed pretty vanilla. David said Anna Marie had no enemies that he knew of, and there was no reason anyone would hurt her. 
He did tell police about one thing. A month earlier, they had been getting calls at the apartment from guys breathing loudly and saying nothing. One guy finally spoke, and because of his distinct accent, Anna Marie thought it might be a guy she knew who worked at the McDonald's. The calls stopped once she deleted their phone number from the McDonald's list. After David's interview was completed, police drove him back to the apartment and observed while he gathered some clothes and cash and then went to stay with a friend. Police investigators talked to the neighbors, Joyce and Joe Mendez in Unit 105, who were the building janitors. They had last seen Anna Marie on Sunday morning around 10, when she was outside saying goodbye to her boyfriend David. David was leaving for a fishing trip, they said. He had a buddy with him that Menendez described as a young white guy with long curly hair. This was Michael L. They had not seen David or his car, which they were familiar with, since. Police also talked to Carolyn and Robert O'Brien in Unit 104. They were home that night but heard nothing. They went to bed early, between 8.30 and 9. They were awakened by screams, but they were screams from Roseanne, who had just found her sister dead. The O'Briens, too, reported that they had seen the young man who lived in the apartment leaving, carrying fishing gear on Sunday morning, and had not seen him since. Somehow, both of these couples had their days mixed up. David and Michael L. actually went fishing all day Saturday, not Sunday. The apartment on the other side of Unit 103, Anna's and Marie's apartment, was used as an office, and it was empty that night, so there was no helpful witness there. Police went across the street and questioned the night clerk at the local grocery store, which was called Elias Grocery, which was located directly across from the apartment where the murder took place. Remember, Anna Marie's apartment was a corner apartment. Police wanted to know whether the clerk had seen anything. If the killer had climbed in the open window, he would have had to have done so from a quite visible spot on the corner. No one from the grocery store reported seeing anything unusual, even though one worker said he was facing the apartment pretty much the entire time span between 5 and 9 p.m. Police did discover that an Elias grocery employee named Mark C. was friendly with Anna Marie and had even asked her out. He had quit and not been seen since right after her murder. Police tracked him down, found out that he had a news clipping about Anna Marie's murder in his toolbox. He told them that they were good friends and he was so shaken up by Anna Marie's murder that he left the neighborhood. What's weird is that he admitted to police to sharing some coke with Anna Marie on occasion, the white kind, not the drink. He didn't really have an alibi for the day of her murder. He thought he was at home. Mark C.'s name went on the list of persons of interest. Even as police canvassed the neighborhood and spoke to Anna Marie's friends and family, they realized that they didn't have much to go on. The crime scene techs had lifted many prints from inside the apartment, but it had been occupied by lots of people. They arranged for Roseanne and David to come into the precinct to be fingerprinted for elimination purposes. No doubt their prints would be found all over the place. They also asked both of them for pubic and head hair samples for comparison to all those collected. But really, all they knew for certain was that Anna Marie had been in her apartment cooking dinner, and sometime between 5 p.m. and 10 when Roseanne arrived home, someone killed her a five-hour window in which no one had a clue what had happened. No one that police could find had seen or heard anything helpful. They were stumped. Police released the apartment back to David on the 26th. He and Roseanne wasted no time moving out. On the 30th, investigators attended Anna Marie's funeral at the Finley Sunset Hills Memorial Park to try to photograph every attendee and take down the license plates of cars parked in the area. 
As I said, police did not have a lot to go on. There were seemingly very few clues as to who had killed Anna Marie in her own apartment as she simmered dinner on the stove. It's safe to say that the suspect list was pretty slim. It was basically made up of men who knew Anna Marie or men who were in the area and acted weird, rather than men against whom there was concrete evidence. When this case was reopened in 2013, the cold case detective felt that there were about eight potential suspects who warranted DNA testing. Let's take a look at these guys. We'll start with David C., Anna Marie's boyfriend. I'm not going to build him up as a suspect. Spoiler alert, it wasn't him. Roseanne told investigators that the couple seemed to get along great. The only argument she could recall was a recent one, and it was about David leaving on a fishing trip. Anna Marie felt that he wasn't spending enough of his spare time with her. This is such a typical squabble between young couples that I suspect detectives didn't give it a second thought. The apartment manager, Mrs. Dykeman, said she never had any problems whatsoever with Anna Marie and David and knew of no issues involving the couple. Roseanne said David had left for work on the morning of the murder around 7 a.m., and his hours varied, so she was never sure when he would be coming and going. But when she got home after her McDonald's shift, it did not look to her as though David had been there. His story matched up. Remember, he said he was at the poorhouse all evening. Police spoke with both David's boss at Sharpen Associates, another guy named Dave, and Vern, the owner of the poorhouse. Sure enough, David was at work all day, and Vern confirmed that David was drinking and playing pool at his establishment from before 7 p.m. when Vern arrived until about 10. As I said, police collected head, arm, and pubic hair samples from David, as well as a saliva and blood sample that was taken at the hospital. David also took a polygraph. He passed on two questions, but was inconclusive as to whether he killed Anna. This was chalked up to him being emotional about his girlfriend's horrific death. This from the police report, quote, David advised that he feels a strong responsibility for Anna's death inasmuch as he did not come home that night, but went to drink beer instead. If he had gone directly home, she would not have been killed. I think this explanation is probably legitimate. Those are notes from the polygrapher. Roseanne told the detectives that David had felt that the McDonald's wasn't the safest job for his girlfriend, because a lot of weirdos hung out there. He had been encouraging her to quit. Anna Marie had filled out an application for jobs at a Fred Meyer and a Taco Man restaurant earlier on the day she died, and had gone to a job interview. Whatever else people said about David, he seemed to care about his girlfriend's well-being. Because he had an alibi, he was backburnered by investigators, but he was not officially eliminated as a suspect until much later. But there was another guy named David B. that Roseanne told detectives she thought they should look at. This was a guy in his mid-30s who lived in the building who gave the girls the creeps. Roseanne said he would hang out at the McDonald's and stare at all the young women who worked there. This guy had come onto her and had come knocking at her and Anna Marie's apartment one night after 11 p.m. and knocked on the door wanting to see her. Roseanne and Anna Marie's work friend, Rosemarie, had seen this David guy at the McDonald's on the morning Anna Marie was killed, Tuesday. He had glared at her and given her a hard time when she asked him to leave, because the management had banned him from the place after the female workers complained about his leering at them. Anna Marie had had to report him to the manager. Roseanne wasn't the only one who found this David B. guy to be weird and possibly suspicious. The apartment manager, Irma Dykeman, told investigators that the tenant in Unit 309, David B., was someone they should talk to. She said he was strange at best and that the janitor, Mr. Mendez, had seen this David drunk in the hallway of the building on Tuesday night. 
And she knew he knew the victim, as she saw him talking to her at McDonald's a month or two earlier. David C., Anna Marie's boyfriend, also mentioned this other David, David B. He told detectives that this guy had knocked on their door about two weeks earlier at 11.30 p.m. He and Anna Marie were distressed about this because they preferred to remain rather private and didn't really host visitors at that hour. When Anna Marie answered the door, this David B. guy had asked for Roseanne, but Anna Marie told him to just go away since it was so late. Police obviously wanted to talk to David B., but he was never around when they came around. Finally, on the 31st, Irma Dykeman told them he had moved out. He left no forwarding address. They found out he had been committed to a mental hospital in 1974 and again in 1975. Police doubled down trying to find him. It took them a while, but they did manage to track him down. And David B. was one of those guys who acts sort of grandiose and overly interested in the investigation. Police polygraphed him on August 23rd, and he passed. They talked to his girlfriend, who said that on the night of the murder, he was at her house for dinner, and he stayed over. But of course, this alibi was iffy, and David B. was a weirdo who knew the victim and lived in her building and possibly was angry at her that day, so he stayed on the suspect list. More on David B. later. Then there was Roseanne and Anna Marie's brother, Mike. He lived in town with a male roommate, also named Mike. I swear, all the Mikes and Davids in this story are going to be the death of me. And the brother, Mike, and Anna Marie did not get along. In fact, Anna Marie had told the apartment manager, Mrs. Dykeman, that she was afraid of her brother. And she did not want to put her name on the mailbox along with David's because she was afraid her brother would be able to find her. So she had a fake name, Fisher, on the mailbox to unit number 103. Anna Marie told Roseanne that Mike stole some cash from her. Needless to say, police were interested to talk to the brother Anna Marie was so intimidated by, she used a fake name to avoid him. This is all a little unclear, though, because when Mike talked to the detectives, he told them that it was true he and Anna Marie didn't get along, but he said he had last seen her that Sunday, two days before her death, at the apartment he shared with the other Mike, Michael T., He said Anna Marie and David had come over to visit with Michael T. and Michael T.'s girlfriend. This does not sound to me like Anna Marie was terrified of her brother Mike if she was okay going over to his apartment. And Mike stepped up and took care of all the funeral arrangements for Anna Marie, which could have been a sign of guilt or of brotherly loyalty. No one knew which. It's worth noting that Anna Marie's other brother Joe was in prison for murder. Apparently he shot someone. Believe me, I wanted to know more about this, but no records are available. I do know that when he got out, he went on to become a construction worker and have a family. But I don't know who he shot or why or what his relationship with his sister was like. Investigators also spoke with Michael L. This guy, who thank goodness went by the nickname Mick, was the fishing buddy that David had gone fishing with a couple of times in the days before the murder. He was also in the same friend's circle as Mike Lavka. Mick told the investigators the last time he saw Anna Marie was on Saturday when he picked David up to go fishing. He said he didn't know Anna Marie all that well. But some of the other building residents and Mrs. Dykeman said they had seen Mick around, so he was someone police side-eyed a bit. They talked to him, asked for his fingerprints, and even requested that he take a polygraph. In his interview, he told police he had gotten off work on Tuesday, July 24th at 4.30 p.m., And the Willamette Iron and Steel timekeeper recorded this. There was plenty of time thereafter to go over and kill Anna Marie. And she probably would have let him in the apartment, police thought, since he was a good friend of her boyfriend David's. 
At the time, Mick's girlfriend Carol Lynn said Mick was with her that night, but there were big holes in his alibi and Mick was squarely on the persons of interest list. Mick L. agreed to come in for the polygraph, but he voided the results by yawning, moving around, and sighing. In short, he acted like the whole thing was a big chore. He refused to retake the test, saying he had done enough to cooperate. He finally relented and did sit for a second poly, the results of which were inconclusive. Mick stayed on the list. Next up was a guy who lived in Anna Marie's building in apartment 203, named Alan Otis Bear. I'm naming him because he's dead now. This guy wrote a letter to the Special Investigations Division of the Portland Police claiming that Anna Marie had come on to him at McDonald's. When he acted interested, she rejected him. He believed she was a prostitute and her manager was her pimp. Bear told the investigators that his M.O. was to go up to the girls working at McDonald's and ask them for a cherry pie. I can just imagine this creep leering at the girls and thinking he is super clever with his double entendre. No doubt nudging each other over this guy's arrogance, the detectives asked if he had ever had any successful relationships with women, and he referenced a one-night stand he had had over a year ago. Anyway, Bear said he believed he was being set up to take the fall for Anna Marie's murder. He felt that people were pointing the finger at him. The police notes say, and I can't help laughing here, quote, Bear does display a feeling that he is irresistible to women. Bear seems to be preoccupied with the idea that all women are driven sexually toward him. End quote. Believe it or not, this guy claimed to have a degree in psychology from a Houston area university. He passed a polygraph on his second try. He came in stoned for his first. Anyway, because he injected himself into the investigation with his letter to the police and claims that people suspected his involvement, Alan Otis Bear put himself squarely on the suspect list as well. Then there were two guys who had been in Anna Marie's apartment a week before she was killed there. A co-worker of Anna Marie's named Lois told detectives that the previous week, on the 18th, she had brought two men over to Anna Marie's apartment around 5.30 p.m. They stayed and had a beer or two, but then Anna Marie kicked them out, saying they needed to leave before her boyfriend David got home. One of these men was a guy named Michael S., again, Michael. Police found out that this Michael S. had been committed to a state hospital on June 2, 1979, was released, stayed with his mom, and then left a note saying he was leaving town. On the 26th, just two days after Anna Marie's murder, he left another note that said, this will be my last day in town. Because of his apparent recent mental health issues and the fact that he knew Anna Marie and had been in her apartment, police wanted to speak with Michael S. and obtain his finger and palm prints. Because he had in fact left town, as indicated in his note, it took them a while to find him. Police notes indicate that he had served in the military, and based on the coincidences in timing and his mental instability, investigators felt he may have been involved. The other guy who had come over to the apartment with Lois on the 18th was a guy named Robert Arneson, who went by Bobby. Bobby Arneson was another strange cat who was a drinker, was somewhat itinerant, having no fixed address, and knew a lot of other guys on the suspect list. Police interviewed him. He was polygraphed as well, but was too inebriated to complete the test. Bobby Arneson would become quite interesting to police, as we will see right now. In 1981, an envelope containing 40-plus photos was mailed to the Portland Police Bureau by an anonymous sender. The photos made the case very, very interesting. Some of the photos were of graffiti that had been scrawled in two public locations in downtown Portland. 
This was not the arty graffiti that you see on muraled walls. This was literal scrawl in childish handwriting, defacing public property. In the first, black writing on a white railing in a park said, quote, Robert Stanley Arneson killed that woman in July 1979 in the Tudor Arms Apartments. The other bit of graffiti on the back side of a large vertical concrete plaque was larger and much more noticeable, and it was much more specific. It read, Robert Stanley Arneson killed that woman in Tudor Arms Apartments on July 24, 1979, Wednesday at 5.10 p.m. He lived in room 309. He did confess that he strangled her with fishing line. Needless to say, this message was intriguing. The time, 5.10, could have been accurate based on what police knew about the timeline. The fishing line wasn't correct, but the manner of death was. The date and location were correct, although the day was wrong. She was killed on Tuesday, not Wednesday. And Bobby Arneson had lived at the Tudor Arms, but apartment 309 was David B.'s apartment. Remember, they were friends. There was more. Arneson himself appeared in some of the photos. In some, he was exposing his penis. In others, he was posing in front of the graffiti. Detective Meredith Hopper, who closed this case, told me that Arneson became her favorite suspect because he was in so many of the photos, kneeling by the graffiti with an angry look on his face, in some photos pointing a gun. Some of the pictures appeared to have been snapped in a cemetery, and Arneson's girlfriend, Leva, told Detective Hopper later that Arneson liked to hang out in cemeteries and drink beer because they were peaceful places. One of the photos was of this Leva. Apparently, back at the time of these initial interviews, Leva provided an alibi for Bobby for the night of the murder. But as we heard, Bobby was considered somewhat unsavory. He hadn't completed a poly, and he had been in Anna Marie's apartment the week before she was killed. And now, he was posing with graffiti in which he purportedly confessed to her murder. Bobby's name went at the top of the suspect list. Other photos in the anonymously mailed bunch were of a guy named Gary J. The people in the photos were Bobby Arneson, his girlfriend Leva, and Gary J., and they were all friends with David B., the weird David who lived in Anna Marie's building and several people had named. And the group of friends also included another guy, a Richard G., Richard and Bobby Arneson, the guy in the photos, had a prankster relationship and were always jerking each other's chains. Bobby Arneson, Gary J., and his girlfriend told police that Richard was the one who showed them the graffiti and said, what do you think of that? Later, Arneson, David, and Leva would each suggest to police that Richard was the one who mailed the photos to police because he was pulling the ultimate prank on Bobby Arneson, who was named in the graffiti and exposing himself in the photos. Richard denied doing the mailing, but whoever had access to the photos was clearly someone who knew all these people. This very odd twist with the mysterious photos being sent to police didn't really help solve the case. Rather, they complicated the investigation and gave it a peculiar and somewhat grotesque undertone. Unfortunately, Anna Marie Lovka's case went cold as ice. Despite ample persons of interest, as we've heard, there was nothing actually tying any of this motley crew to her murder. And with modern forensics still a couple of decades off, there was not much detectives could do to further the investigation. They were going to have to wait for science to pave the way. I'm so excited to welcome our new sponsor, Magic Mind. I'm now an official Magic Mind ambassador. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because this little elixir really works and has made a big difference for me. Like many people with busy lives, I rely on caffeine to give me a boost in the morning. 
And I'd like a little green tea after lunch to get me through the afternoon, a time when I find my energy levels dip. But I'm also someone who, as I get older, can't tolerate too much caffeine. It makes me jittery and messes with my sleep. I've had to cut back. But that's not a problem because since I discovered Magic Mind, I need much less caffeine to stay energized. I keep my Magic Mind shots in the fridge and have one every morning after my regular cup of coffee. And that's it. That's all I need to maintain steady and consistent levels of productivity throughout the day without that dragging feeling I used to get in the afternoons. That's because Magic Mind extends the benefits of caffeine for more long-term release. But that's not all this delicious little shot does for me and hopefully will do for you. Magic Mind is a curated compound of several high-end ingredients like ashwagandha, nootropics, and matcha that together contribute to reduce stress and anxiety, better sleep, consistent energy, and less inflammation throughout the body, among other things. Before sampling it, I ran the ingredients in Magic Mind by my dear friend who's a nutritionist, and she raved about it. So I tried it, and I've received all the benefits I've described, plus I've noticed a decrease in my blood pressure, which is a good thing. I'm making my husband try Magic Mind, and I have sent some to my nutritionist friend as well so she can recommend it to her clients. That's how convinced I am that it works. So where can you get Magic Mind to try it for yourself? It will be sent right to your door so you don't have to do a thing. And don't worry, it's not nearly as expensive as you would think considering it took Magic Mind seven years to develop. If you subscribe for regular monthly shipments of Magic Mind, it costs even less. You just need to use my discount code DNA20 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your purchase if you choose not to subscribe. Go to www.magicmind.co slash DNA and enter the code DNA20 at checkout. The best part is they have a money-back guarantee, but I know you're going to love it. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days, though, so hurry up, guys. Again, that's www.magicmind.co slash DNA and enter the code DNA20. In 2009, Dennis Baker, a retired detective from the Cold Case Homicide Unit, took on the voluntary task of reviewing the Lavka case from a fresh, modern perspective. He discovered that some items of physical evidence remained in storage and had never been tested or hadn't been subjected to updated testing methodologies. And so he submitted them to the Oregon State Police Crime Lab for forensic analysis. After a wait of two years of backlog, the testing paid off. Dr. Janelle Moore, a DNA analyst for the OSP Crime Lab, later explained how all this happened. Preserved in evidence and previously untested, she found fingernail scrapings from Anna Marie's left hand that were taken at autopsy. A lot of luck played into this. Dr. Moore said that for one thing, they were very lucky the evidence was preserved in pristine form. DNA wasn't a thing at the time of Anna Marie's death, so the preservation of autopsy samples was not always done. As quoted in the Oregonian, Dr. Moore explained it was unusual to find a full, intact DNA profile after so many years. She said, quote, it was kept in a dry, dark place. It was perfect. The other lucky break was that the sample had not been previously tested. Earlier testing methodologies were not nearly as sophisticated and would likely have used up the entire sample without yielding the complete profile results. As Dr. Moore explained, if she'd analyzed the sample even in 2006, when she first came to the crime lab, she would likely not have obtained the results she was able to get in 2011. So Dr. Moore analyzed the fingernail scrapings and hit the forensic jackpot. Sure enough, male DNA was found, which obviously was not the victim's own, and was almost certainly the unknown offender's. Though a minute sample, there was enough there to yield a complete male DNA profile. 
It was consistent with the DNA profile extracted from the cuttings of the sleeping bag containing a semen stain found under Anna Marie's body. This was big. Now police had the genetic blueprint of Anna Marie's killer. They could use it to compare to suspects in the case like David, the boyfriend, who had submitted a blood sample back in the day. In 2012, the cold case homicide unit started actively working the Lavka case, with the lead investigator being Detective Meredith Hopper. Detective Hopper went through the case file and made a list of the men she believed were viable suspects. She ruled out some names, such as Mike Lavka, who had a solid alibi. But there were eight men on the suspect list whom she could not rule out, many of whom seemed like solid candidates to be the killer of Anna Marie. Detective Hopper spent the next four years, from 2012 to 2016, tracking down, investigating, and re-interviewing these eight men. It was almost like starting the whole investigation over again, but this time with an ace in her pocket. In April of 2013, Detective Hopper sat down with Richard G., the friend of David B.'s, Bobby Arneson's, and Gary J.'s, who some people believed had sent the 1981 photos to police. He denied sending the photos to the cops, but... He told Detective Hopper that he had definitely been intrigued by the murder because it happened on his birthday, July 24th. He said he didn't kill Anna Marie and had never even been in her apartment. Richard told Detective Hopper that he thought David B. must have been the one who killed Anna Marie because he heard that David B. had gotten into a fight with Anna Marie that day and been kicked out of the McDonald's because of it. He also said that his friend Barbie Arneson, who was the subject of his pranks, drank heavily at the time and did a lot of stupid stuff. Richard seemed to recall some stuff about the crime, such as that Anna Marie was strangled with an electrical cord, but when Detective Hopper asked him to give a DNA sample for elimination purposes, he agreed and was cooperative. Testing revealed that his DNA profile was not consistent with that of Anna Marie's killer. But for what it's worth, Detective Hopper told me she felt that Richard D. probably was the one who sent the photos implicating his pranking pal Bobby Arneson to the police. David B. was also interviewed again in spring of 2013. By this point, he was in a care facility, and he struck Detective Hopper as being quite an odd man. He told basically the same story he had back in 1989. He denied having any kind of relationship with Anna Marie, but this time he told Detective Hopper that his buddy Bobby Arneson always talked about killing women. Bobby Arneson claimed he had, quote, hung one or two under bridges, David said. David believed that Bobby had written the graffiti naming himself as the killer. Despite all this finger-pointing at his friend Bobby, David told Detective Hopper that he always thought Anna Marie's boyfriend David had killed her. David B. also gave a voluntary DNA sample, and he, too, was ruled out. That was two down. Alan Otis Baer, the weirdo who had written to police claiming Anna Marie was a sex worker, had died in 2002. Detective Hopper tracked down his full sibling, Brother G., in Texas. With the remote assistance of a detective local to G, she obtained a voluntary DNA sample from him, which eliminated his brother as the killer. The analyst could determine, based on the assumed similarities of the sibling's DNA, that Alan's DNA was not a match to the killer. That was three names crossed off the list. It was on to Bobby Arneson. Unfortunately, his girlfriend from way back in the day, Leva, said that Bobby had eventually become a transient, after deciding he hated people and descending into full-blown alcoholism. He had long since passed away. This was a setback because Bobby was a viable suspect, as several others had called him out for sus behavior, and he was the one named in the graffiti and depicted in most of the photos. And in her 2013 interview, Leva said she couldn't recall alibying him. 
So, since she could not obtain a DNA sample from Bobby, Detective Hopper had to resort to the next best thing, the DNA from Bobby's biological son, whom I'm not naming. The son told the detective he and his father weren't close, and he readily gave a DNA sample to either eliminate or zero in on his father as the killer. It wasn't a match. Four down. Mick L., David's fishing buddy, was interviewed at his home on 11-12-2013. In the interview, he was abrasive towards Detectives Wheat and Hopper. When they told him there was new evidence and they wanted his DNA for comparison, he refused and wanted to consult with his attorney. Detectives' notes indicate that Mick immediately became defensive and said he wasn't interested in being hassled like he was back then. Oddly, he told detectives that his girlfriend from back in the day, Carol, had died of cancer. Well, she hadn't. She was alive and well and was quite surprised when Detective Hopper told her that Mick said she was dead. Was he hoping that detectives would take his word for it and not track down Carol for some reason? If so, it wasn't clear why. He had named Carol as his alibi back in 1979, but it turned out that his alibi wasn't rock solid and there were gaps large enough for him to have killed Anna Marie. In her 2013 interview, Carol told Detective Hopper that Mick was a good guy and had not been interested in Anna Marie at all. Funnily, she said that if Detective Hopper had seen Anna Marie, who Carol described as plain, next to her, she would see why Mick was interested in Carol instead. She did say that Mick was upset when his best friend David's girlfriend got murdered. She said he wasn't the crying type, yet he was in tears. But in general, Mick was more interested in fishing than sex, and there was nothing unusual or untoward about their sex life or personal life that she had to report. In 2016, with Mick refusing to submit a DNA sample, Detective Hopper obtained a search warrant for the DNA of Mick L. Her affidavit in support of the warrant made the case that the purpose of the sample was to either eliminate or identify Mick as the killer. Mick's lying about Carol's death, his shady alibi, his access to the apartment, and his knowing Anna Marie all supported the affidavit. The search warrant was executed and a DNA sample taken from Mick. It excluded him. He wasn't the killer. Mike Singleton was also interviewed in 2013. He was one of the two guys who had gone to Anna Marie's apartment with her friend Lois the week before the murder. His interview was pretty short. His connection to the case was quite tangential. He couldn't even recall the last name of his buddy with whom he'd gone to Anna Marie's apartment. That was Bobby Arneson. Michael S. was ruled out after giving a DNA sample. Two suspects were left. One was Mark C., the guy who had liked Anna Marie and could see her apartment from the grocery store where he worked. He was dead, but he was ruled out after his daughter willingly gave her DNA. The last guy on the list barely appeared in the case file. He was a friend of the family named James F., Detective Hopper had no real reason to suspect him, but was being thorough in an attempt to obtain DNA from everyone. James gave a sample and was eliminated. That was the last man in the case file. It was June 2016, and the investigators were at square one. After the last of the eight remaining suspects was tested and excluded as being Anna Marie's killer, the investigators were a bit dejected. Detective Hopper said each time she submitted one of these eight samples for comparison, she was sure it was going to be the guy. It never was. In May 2016, Detective Hopper and her colleague Brendan McGuire sat down with Rose Ann and her husband and discussed the status of the case. The investigators assured the family that, although this was a setback, they would continue to pursue the use of continually evolving technology to try to find answers. They would have to wait for two more years.
In May of 2018, on the heels of the GSK solve, Detective Hopper, who was reading I'll Be Gone in the Dark at the time, proposed to her colleagues that they try forensic genealogy in the Lavka case. They knew that they had a complete DNA profile thanks to the material under Anna Marie's nails, and they were hopeful that this new technique could provide answers for the Lavka family. They contacted Parabon Nanolabs and arranged to send a sample from the OSP crime lab to Parabon's partner lab for preparation of a SNP profile. Parabon assessed the solvability of the case at about a 4, based on the low call rate of the sample. Once the SNP profile was completed in July of 2018, Parabon's forensic genealogist Cece Moore entered the profile into GEDmatch. There she found eight helpful matches and a number of more distant supporting matches. The highest match shared 93.8 centimorgans with the unknown profile, the second highest shared 91.8, and the third highest shared 78 centimorgans. Matches 4 to 10 ranged from just 74.1 centimorgans at the high end to 38.5 centimorgans at the very low end. Basically, the closest relatives they had were third cousins of the killer, pretty distant. But they were able to connect the top 20 matches to three separate genetic networks. In network one, match number one, the highest, was third cousin to match number seven, and third cousin once removed to each of matches nine and ten. In network number two, match number two was third cousins once removed to matches five and six. In network three, match number three was third cousin to match number eight. So they were basically able to determine three networks that must have intersected somewhere since the suspect was related to them all. Parabon's report dated October 2018 states, quote, These matches are along three of his four grandparents' ancestral lines, with the exception of his maternal grandfather's line, end quote. I looked at some very extensive family trees that showed that if the genealogist went back five or so generations, she could tie the suspect to matches number four, one, seven, and nine through their ancestors, two couples named Pierce and Bo, from whom the suspect's maternal grandmother was descended. Another diagrammed tree shows the suspect and matches 5, 6, and 2 all descended from a couple named Westbrook, and their great-granddaughter was the suspect's paternal grandmother. The final tree shows the connection between the suspect and matches 3 and 8, through their mutual ancestors, the McFaddens. The suspect's paternal grandfather was their son. The only missing link was the suspect's maternal grandfather's line, a Dempsey Clarence Todd, who lived in a squatter's camp and fathered many children with his second wife. But Cece didn't need this fourth branch of the suspect's tree to figure out that he was likely one of the three sons of Herman Lee McFadden and Dorothy Lucille Todd. Parabon's report named these three McFadden brothers and stated that based on the genealogy, any one of them could be the killer of Anna Marie Lovka. But one of them stood out. He had a significant record of extremely violent crimes against women, whereas his brothers had no criminal histories at all. And Parabon knew, based on their DNA phenotyping of the unknown suspect profile, that he had overwhelmingly Northern European ancestry, fair skin, light blue eyes, and blondish red hair. The physical characteristics of the brother with the criminal record fit the predicted physical traits. His name was Jerry Walter McFadden. Well, despite their initial excitement at receiving results from the forensic genealogy, the name Jerry McFadden meant nothing to the Portland detectives on the Lavka case. It wasn't in the case file not once. It certainly wasn't the name of any of the guys who knew Anna Marie. 
And what was concerning was that this guy, Jerry McFadden, didn't even live in Oregon, not even close. In the summer of 1979, he was living 2,000 miles away in Texas. He could not have killed Anna Marie in her Portland apartment in July 1979, could he? This is an excellent example of how the police utilize the forensic genealogy results as a lead only. When they got McFadden's name, someone who had no known nexus with the state of Oregon, much less the victim, it was just the beginning of the cold case investigators' work on this angle. Rather than closing the case, they had to open a whole new avenue of inquiry. Who was this McFadden? What was his connection, if any, to Anna Marie? And was he somehow in Oregon, despite there being zero documentation or records of this, in the summer of 1979? Portland authorities held a press conference announcing the resolution of the Anna Marie Lavka homicide case on January 31, 2019. Present were Roseanne and her kids, Chris and Jen, who never knew their aunt. Detective Carrie Taylor, one of the original first responders who worked the case for years, was on hand, as was Dr. Janelle Moore from the OSP Crime Lab, Assistant Chief Jamie Resch, and of course, Detective Hopper. Detective Hopper announced that the man who killed Anna Marie Lavka was Jerry Walter McFadden. He was a multiple rapist and murderer who was executed by the state of Texas in October 1999. Both the DNA and circumstantial evidence linked McFadden to the homicide, but, Detective Hopper said, detectives were still seeking information on McFadden's activities in the area. Assistant Chief Jamie Resch spoke, thanking the detectives from the Cold Case Homicide Unit for their dedication. Shockingly, she said that the unit has 275 cold cases that need to be worked. Detective Taylor was thrilled to see a resolution to his old case, albeit one he never anticipated. He told the Oregonian, quote, It's awesome. It's good to see a success story. C.C. Moore told me that in about 98% of Parabon's cases, the person they identify is local to the crime. Yet here, Jerry McFadden, lifelong Texan, killed Anna Marie in Portland. So what was the deal? How the detectives connect McFadden, who had no known ties to Oregon or the Pacific Northwest, to the Lavka case? Once they obtained McFadden's name from Parabon and confirmed that he was not in the case file and Anna Marie's family had never heard of him, in November 2018, Detectives Hopper and McGuire got on a plane to Texas. They were lucky to receive full cooperation from several members of McFadden's family, who already knew, of course, about his criminal proclivities. Detective Hopper found that McFadden's two brothers, who were just normal citizens with no criminal tendencies, were a bit reticent to uncover more heinous crimes attributable to their sibling. And the brothers and some other relatives of McFadden's told the detectives that McFadden was a lifelong Texan, all his known criminal activities were in three counties in Texas. At this, the detectives' hearts sank, because if they couldn't tie McFadden to Oregon, then the forensic genealogy was useless. But then, one of the brothers' wives, McFadden's sister-in-law, recalled something. McFadden had been very close with his sister, and his sister had a female friend who had taken a road trip in the summer of 1979 to go visit her brother, and Jerry McFadden had gone with her. The two drove from Texas alone in a car for several days to the Pacific Northwest. There, the young woman dropped him off and never heard from him again. Detectives flew back to Texas to speak with this woman who had traveled with McFadden. She told them that the road trip was scary and she was afraid of him. They drove straight through so she could drop him off and be rid of him. Where did she drop him? Portland, Oregon. And there was the missing link they needed. 
Now that they had a very loose connection between McFadden and the geographic location of the crime, they needed DNA to confirm the identification. Again, McFadden's relatives cooperated by submitting DNA samples for comparison to the profile in evidence. On November 29, 2018, a report from the OSP Crime Lab stated that they had compared samples from McFadden's biological children, whom I am not naming, but they are a man and a woman named J and R, to the samples from Anna Marie's fingernail scrapings. The report says, quote, It is at least 89 billion times more likely that the contributor of the DNA profile obtained from this item is the biological father of J and R than from an unknown, unrelated individual. It was him. Needless to say, without the cooperation of McFadden's relatives, this resolution never would have happened. Detective Hopper at the press conference requested privacy for the family members, who selflessly chose to assist the investigators in pinning yet another horrific murder on their father. Another question I'm sure listeners will have is why was McFadden's DNA not in CODIS? As a rapist and murderer, his profile absolutely belongs in the database. The answer is that McFadden was executed before this could be done. Texas made CODIS entry mandatory for violent felons starting in 1995, and McFadden was already on death row at that time. They just didn't get to him. If he'd been arrested for any one of these crimes now, of course, his DNA would be entered into the system pronto. So who was Jerry Walter McFadden and what did he do? McFadden was born on March 21, 1948, to Herman Lee McFadden and Dorothy Lucille Todd in Haskell, Texas. Herman and Dorothy had two other sons and two daughters, only one of whom survived to adulthood. McFadden dropped out of school in the seventh grade, and it appears he had a number of jobs over the years, such as telephone cable installer, oil field worker, and construction worker. According to the Tyler Morning Telegraph, by age 19, he was married to a girl named Judy, who I refer to as a girl, not a woman, because she was only 15 when they married. Judy is the mother of R and J, but the marriage didn't last and the couple divorced on July 22, 1980. The Morning Telegraph chalks this up to McFadden's increasing violence and brushes with the law. He was convicted on a burglary charge in 1966 and for destruction of property in 1968. But these property crimes were just the tip of the iceberg. McFadden, who called himself by the moniker Animal, raped a 14-year-old girl in Denton, Texas in 1972. That same year, he raped a junior high school teacher in his hometown of Haskell. He pleaded guilty to these two rapes in 1973 and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. But get ready for this. Animal McFadden was paroled in December 1978 after serving just five years for two violent rapes, including one of a child. It didn't take long for him to strike again. On June 22, 1979, McFadden kidnapped at knife point an 18-year-old secretary at the office of the oil field he worked at. He sexually assaulted and strangled her. This from the Associated Press, quote, Woodrow Simmons, investigator for the Shackleford County District Attorney's Office, said McFadden abducted the secretary from an oil field office and raped her repeatedly. He put her against a tree and choked her until he thought she was dead, Simmons said. End quote. McFadden actually tried to strangle her with her own underwear. But she wasn't dead, and she was able to identify McFadden. But he wasn't arrested. This is because he left town to head to Portland. This aggravated sexual abuse of the secretary in Shackleford happened on June 22, 1979. 
Anna Marie Lavka was slain by Jerry McFadden in Portland one month later, on July 24, 1979. No one had any clue that while he was on his lengthy road trip, he killed someone in an area of the country he had literally zero ties to. But I guess McFadden couldn't stay away from Texas because he returned to the state and in October 1979 was arrested for a parole violation. While in custody, he was convicted for the aggravated sexual abuse of the secretary in June. The survivor was so traumatized by his assault on her, she had difficulty testifying against him. Nonetheless, he was sentenced to life in prison. So that's it, right? Jerry McFadden was permanently where he belonged and could not hurt any more women. Nope. Wrong. Astoundingly and confoundingly, McFadden was paroled in July 1985. Again, he had served just five years of a much lengthier sentence for a very violent crime. This time, people objected. No one wanted Animal McFadden loose on the streets, much less living in their own neighborhoods. This next bit from the Tyler Morning Telegraph. McFadden was allowed to move to the small community of Hawkins to live with his mother and sister. Wood County authorities protested vigorously after learning McFadden intended to settle in the Hawkins area. I wrote the parole board and asked them not to parole him to this area, then-Sheriff Frank White said in a May 13, 1986 newspaper. I asked them to parole him back to West Texas, where the officials there knew his habits and could better keep an eye on him. But McFadden's parole to East Texas was granted anyway, in spite of White's objections. The state had a mandate to ease prison overcrowding, allowing prisoners, even violent ones such as McFadden, to shave time off their sentences in exchange for good behavior and time served. Law enforcement in Shackelford County alerted state prison officials that he was not a good release candidate, writing to the Texas Department of Corrections, quote, This department has had Jerry Walter McFadden in custody since December 29, 1980, and he has been in maximum security at all times. McFadden is a dangerous, aggressive-type individual and is not to be trusted at any time. Security should be doubled and tripled at any time that he is not in confinement. Still, the state's parole board approved his release, and he headed to East Texas in spite of concerns raised by then-Wood County Sheriff Frank White and Wood County Justice of the Peace Precinct 3 Ray Robertson. A psychological assessment, referred to as an attitude interview, was conducted prior to his release, according to records obtained by the Tyler Morning Telegraph. This next bit is derived from that publication. In that interview, McFadden was asked about past sexual aggression. He denied committing any offenses and expressed no guilt. He later admitted that he had injured people and didn't like being alone. He expressed love for his parents and described himself as a good child who was never abused or suffered an injury that could have contributed to his criminal behavior. McFadden, who dropped out before the seventh grade, indicated he did poorly in school and received no remedial education assistance. Parole officials in the Tyler office had concerns about his mental stability, but there was little to do but assign him to a field officer and monitor his activities as best they could. McFadden agreed to the terms of his release, including attending sexual and mental health counseling. He later found a girlfriend, and tests revealed he did not abuse drugs. For a while, McFadden tried following the rules. He found a job, started saving money, and reported as instructed— sometimes a couple of times a week, although he frequently missed counseling sessions. Eventually, he began to experience episodes of unemployment, and by spring, he was in trouble again. Well, he sure was. Thanks again to the Tyler Morning Telegraph for that previous bit. On May 4, 1986, three young people headed out for a day of fun at a local lake. They were 18-year-old Suzanne Harrison, 
a senior about to graduate from Hawkins High, a National Honor Society member, and a cheerleader. Suzanne was bubbly and fun, but also ambitious, working at a local pharmacy and joining Future Teachers of America. With her on her trip to the lake was her best friend, 20-year-old Gina Turner, who, according to the Morning Telegraph, was, quote, academically gifted and valedictorian of the 1984 graduating class. At the time of her death, she was attending Tyler Junior College and dreamed of being a nurse, end quote. The two met up with 19-year-old Brian Boone, a football captain and basketball player who planned on attending Tyler Junior College in the fall. They headed out to Lake Hawkins and The Point, a teenage gathering spot. It's not clear how they came across McFadden, but he was known to camp in the area, probably drawn to it by all the young people he could have access to. No one knows exactly how Gina, Suzanne, and Brian ended up in McFadden's car, but we know from the crimes he committed against the trio that he had a gun in his possession. He beat, raped, and strangled Suzanne with whatever was on hand, just as he had with Anna Marie. In this case, it was her underwear, just like the Shackelford County secretary years earlier. Then he dumped Suzanne in a state park on Barnwell Mountain in Upshur County. Again, we just don't know what the order of events was, but the Texas Executions website reports that it is speculated he then drove 15 miles away and shot Gina once and Brian twice with a 38 caliber pistol, both execution style. He left their bodies in a ditch beside Farm to Market Road 1649 near Orr City and drove off. At 1.20 a.m. the next day, on May 5th, Brian's brother found his pickup truck at a Lake Hawkins parking area with Suzanne's and Gina's purses in it. Meanwhile, park personnel soon found Suzanne's body. This descriptive information from the Morning Telegraph, her body was, quote, tossed over an embankment. She died alone in the dark. Her body was facing downward off the mountain, fists clutching a wad of thorny vines and several articles of clothing lying nearby. Authorities summoned to the location also found clothing presumed to belong to Gina, but she and Brian were nowhere to be found. Suzanne was so badly beaten that even though she had only been deceased for a day, her family could not identify her. Her aunt said to the Tyler Morning Telegraph, quote, They asked me, would you recognize her watch? I looked and said, oh God, that's her watch, end quote. No one had any idea who could have killed Suzanne, and they were even more perplexed at the disappearance of her friends Brian and Gina. Digging by police uncovered witnesses who reported seeing the friends near Lake Hawkins with a scruffy-looking white man in a blue-and-white Bronco pickup. And then, on May 10th, Brian and Gina were found. Their decomposing corpses lay together in a water-filled ditch about eight miles from Suzanne along Farm to Country Road 1649, about a mile east of Orr City, according to the Telegraph. So how was McFadden caught? Well, it turns out he had also robbed some folks and let them live. This from TexasExecutions.org. Quote, Clifton and Denise Phillips, who were also at Lake Hawkins on 4 May, told police that a man robbed them at, at about 6.30 p.m. They described his blue and white truck, a Bronco, and gave the first five digits of his license plate. They said that the man used a blue steel revolver, a thirty-eight or three fifty-seven caliber. End quote. McFadden had pointed a gun at the Phillipses and demanded money. When they said they didn't have any, he asked for beer. They handed over two. Because they had most of the license plate and truck description, police bolos soon paid off. On May 6th, officers pulled McFadden over north of Mineola, near Loop 564 and State Highway 37. He was driving a blue and white Bronco with a license plate that matched the one seen by his robbery victims. 
Police charged McFadden with the robbery as a placeholder while they built their case against him for the murder of Suzanne. Okay, this next bit gets really, really crazy. In July 1986, McFadden sat in the Upshur County Jail awaiting trial on the murder charges for killing Suzanne Harrison. As he was being escorted to the lobby of the jail to make a phone call, McFadden made a break for it. He attacked a guard and managed to wrest his gun away from him. He locked the guard in a cell and then forced 24-year-old Sheriff's Deputy Rosalie Williams to take him to her car. Rosalie worked as a jailer and dispatcher, and McFadden held her at gunpoint while speeding off. He eventually crashed the vehicle while trying to eyeball an overhead police chopper. This was about four miles outside Big Sandy. The resultant manhunt was notoriously the largest in Texas history. Reports vary, but all sources say that between 800 and 1,200 law enforcement officers from scores of different agencies assisted in the hunt for McFadden. McFadden and his hostage Rosalie were on foot, but McFadden managed to drag things out for three days. Luckily, Rosalie escaped. This from Associated Press, quote, His hostage, Sheriff's Deputy Rosalie Williams, escaped Thursday after 16 hours in a boxcar when McFadden, who had left to get some water, was distracted by barking dogs, said her husband, Eddie. Ms. Williams jumped from the boxcar and crawled on her hands and knees to a nearby house and went inside, end quote. Of course, I wondered whether Rosalie, who had been a hostage a total of 28 hours, had been assaulted by McFadden. After all, he had a history of violent rapes. But her husband told the Associated Press that he hadn't attacked her. Eddie Williams said, quote, She has a few scratches from briars in the woods and a little poison ivy. But other than that, she's fine. He treated her like a normal person. He didn't abuse her or anything like that. End quote. Eddie said that McFadden selected Rosalie as his hostage, quote, because she was so nice to the inmates. Anyway, Rosalie escaped and called 911, and now the cops knew the area in which McFadden was holed up. They surrounded the area where he was hiding in an abandoned house. This from Associated Press, quote, Collin County Sheriff's deputies found Jerry Walter McFadden, dirty and covered with scratches, hiding out in the bathroom of a vacant house, not far from where his hostage got away from him on Wednesday. He said, It's me. I said, Who? He said, McFadden, said Sergeant Randy Norton, one of the arresting deputies. He said he'd been there all day. I think he was ready to go home. The escapee surrendered without a fight, throwing out the thirty-eight caliber service revolver he had taken when he escaped on Wednesday, Norton said. End quote. It was over. Jerry McFadden was back in police custody and would never taste freedom again. In August 1986, he was convicted of armed robbery for the jail escape and sentenced to life. In summer 1987, he was put on trial in Bell County for the murder of Suzanne Harrison. Arguments and testimony in McFadden's trial took 90 hours over 16 days. The witnesses who had seen him driving with the teens at the lake that day testified to their being in his vehicle. McFadden's girlfriend at the time testified that he always had a 38 in the car and it was missing on the day after the murders. Forensic experts testified that hairs and sweater fibers found on McFadden when he was arrested matched Suzanne. He was never charged with the other two murders, those of Brian and Gina. Prosecutors weren't sure they had enough to convict him on those homicide charges. But evidence about his involvement in their deaths was brought up at the trial. And in the end, it was enough. On July 14, 1987, the jury found Jerry Walter McFadden guilty of murdering Suzanne Harrison in the course of an aggravated sexual assault. They just took a few hours to reach their verdict, 
and just 45 minutes after the penalty phase to sentence him to death. This despite the fact that McFadden's 17-year-old daughter, R., begged the jury to spare his life. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence in November 1993. All of his subsequent appeals in state and federal court were denied. All in all, McFadden was on death row for 12 years and three months. The Tyler Morning Telegraph did a great write-up on McFadden, which really gives a feel for who he was. This all taken directly from that paper. Physically, McFadden cast an imposing shadow. He was a big, wild-haired man whose body was covered in devilish-looking tattoos featuring contorted faces and satanic imagery. This menacing appearance seemed to be amplified by his less-than-seventh-grade education, long history of mental instability, and an inner fury that was unpredictable, violent, and sometimes unbridled. He was violent with women, finding pleasure in stalking them and then overpowering females that interested him, according to officials and prison records. Former Upshur Assistant District Attorney Tim Cohn said, quote, This was one of the worst offenses and certainly the worst offender I've ever dealt with. McFadden's come around very, very infrequently. You rarely run into somebody as dangerous as he was. He was a very different kind of guy. For some reason, I think he hated women. Cohn recalled one court proceeding where a female assistant district attorney walked into the room and McFadden's demeanor changed in an instant from calm to furious. There was a flash across his face, Cohn said. I saw it. I had had him on cross-examination. We were in the middle, and I saw it when she walked in. It was just a momentary thing, but the nice passive look, it was gone. It reinforced the idea that this guy is a guy that hates women and it's not going to stop. He was certainly capable of more evil and it certainly would have continued. McFadden's defense attorney, Bernard Solomon, said during a recent interview his late client had deep-seated interviews. His history of crime was pretty bad, Solomon said. Jerry was kind of quiet, antisocial. He was a sociopath. He met all of those standards. He had no conscience about him whatsoever. I just never let him get behind me. Solomon said he couldn't be certain, but suggested McFadden's bad behavior could stem from a childhood injury, possibly from being struck with a baseball bat. The attorney said McFadden's family said he was never the same after that incident. But remember, in his own interview, McFadden denied that he ever had any kind of head injury. McFadden's execution date arrived on October 14, 1999. He ordered a last meal of a bacon lettuce tomato sandwich with pickles and onions, french fries, several Cokes, and a pint of butter pecan ice cream. The proceeding was witnessed by some members of his victims' families. McFadden chose not to make a final statement or face anyone. The needles went in, and he was pronounced dead at 6.16 p.m., eight minutes after the first injection. Speaking of McFadden's refusal to look his victims' loved ones in the eye and his refusal to speak, Gina Turner's father said, quote, He was like a hurricane, nothing but destruction. So that's the sordid saga of Jerry Walter McFadden, truly a bad dude. Unfortunately, his execution closed the door on any chance we had to obtain answers to all our questions in the Lavka case. Why did McFadden go to Portland, Oregon? Was the heat too hot after the late June 1979 rape and attempted murder of the young secretary? What did he do in Oregon? Did he know anyone there? Where did he stay? How and when did he get back to Texas? And most importantly, does he have other victims in the area? Detective Hopper told me that the DNA profile in Anna Marie's case, now known to be McFadden's, does not match the profile in any other unsolved cases in Portland. 
So if McFadden did attack or kill anyone else on his foray to the Pacific Northwest, we don't have any physical evidence to link the cases. Nevertheless, the Portland PD is still looking for tips on McFadden's activities in that city and the surrounding areas. He could have remained in the area for months and committed any number of heinous crimes during his stay. Now for the question of the day. How did Animal McFadden, violent predator, cross paths with Anna Marie Lavka, a shy, quiet girl who kept to her close circle of friends? Detective Hopper believes firmly that McFadden and Anna Marie did not know each other. It's possible he followed her home from Fred Meyer, but he could have also just seen her through the window of her ground floor apartment, noted she was alone, and taken a shine to her. Detectives' notes in the case file don't indicate whether Anna Marie's apartment door was self-locking or whether it was locked by her from the inside, and no one knows whether the door to the apartment had a peephole. But Detective Hopper told me she believes that the window, which, remember, was found open, was McFadden's access point. Whether he left through the door or climbed back out the window, we don't know, and going in and out through the window was definitely risky, as it was a busy street in view of a grocery shop, pedestrians, and vehicular traffic. It's possible that it was dark out, but the sun sets in Portland close to 9 p.m. in late July, so it seems likely that it was still daylight or twilight, and it would have been very brazen for McFadden, a large man, to clamber through the window from a Cooch Street sidewalk. But as we've heard, brazen was almost his middle name. I asked Detective Hopper why there were no signs of struggle in the apartment. Did Anna Marie not fight back, running from McFadden, throwing things and knocking things over in her terrified scramble to get away? Detective Hopper told me that she suspects that McFadden was so threatening and Anna Marie so terrified, the meek, shy young woman capitulated to his demands in hopes that he would let her live. She didn't have any defensive wounds, but she did get some of his skin under her nails, so we know she did put up a fight. One of the famous photos of Animal McFadden is terrifying. His reddish-blonde hair is everywhere, and he's huge and mean-looking with menacing tattoos. It's certainly believable that Anna Marie would have simply prayed that she could give this beast what he wanted and he would leave. But when he strangled her, she managed to scrape some crucial skin cells off his tarnished hide before expiring, thus solving the case decades later. Of the resolution of this case, Detective Hopper said that McFadden absolutely never would have risen to the level of suspect were he not named by forensic genealogy. And even then, I might point out, it took dedicated detective work to connect all the dots. After 40 years, Anna Marie Lovka's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you so much to Detective Meredith Hopper for talking to me about this case. And if you missed DNA ID while we were on hiatus, show us a little love by becoming a Patreon or giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and at DNA ID podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID. 
and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.